0: Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session 9 of This Means War, a new weekly podcast series on Bible battles that symbolize contemporary situations. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma, for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. In this ninth episode, we will take a look at a nonviolent battle in the Old Testament for the symbolism that it holds for modern Christians faced with opposing evil. And then we'll see how other Old and New Testament verses support that symbolism. So come with me to about 850 BC, and we are in the life of the prophet Elisha. His name means God is salvation, and you might recall that he was mentored by the famous Elijah. He was his student for several years before the scripture says that Elijah was caught up in the heaven in a flaming chariot of fire. Elisha, his successor, ministered for 50 years, and he ran prophet schools in Bethel and Jericho and Gilgal. So here we are in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. Well, Aram is another name for Syria, and its capital city was Damascus, like it still is. It is to the northeast of Israel. But we go on, 2 Kings 6. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. You may remember that by this time in Israel's history, they had become two separate nations. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had a king who was not descended from David, and he reigned from the capital city of Samaria. It was the southern king of Judah that had Jerusalem as his capital and was descended from David. So we're talking about the city of Dothan, which is in the region called Samaria and not very far from the capital city of Samaria where the king was. Verse 15, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, you know, the servant of Elisha, they were in the city of Dothan, and the Aramaeans had come to the city of Dothan. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That must have looked awfully familiar to Elisha because he was standing right there when horses and chariots of fire came down for Elijah the prophet who had mentored him all those years. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This isn't the road and this isn't the city. Follow me and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Just a little bit south of Dothan where they were, can you even imagine the terror and confusion that those soldiers experienced when they suddenly went blind. They didn't know if the sun had suddenly been blacked out or if it was everyone or just individual people. Maybe some of them fell off their horses. Maybe some of them started screaming. Maybe they were rubbing their eyes. And... Along comes Elisha, and he starts calling out to all of them. It'll be okay. Let me help you. Let me take you to the person you seek. And so he brings them right there where the king and all his military men are, the capital city of Samaria. And can you even imagine that scene? Hundreds of soldiers, it doesn't say how many there were, but it had to have been a good number if they could surround an entire city. And they are all being led by one man. So their horses have vision, but they don't. Imagine riding a horse blind and following a person that you don't even know who he is. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. So that's the third time he's prayed an important prayer. First, he wanted the Lord to open the eyes of his servant, And then he wanted the Lord to blind the eyes of the Arameans, and now he wants the Lord to open the eyes of the Arameans. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were, inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? It's interesting, in other places, this same king referred to Elisha as my father, even though he was probably older than Elisha. He was somewhat of an idolater, not really a righteous king, although he seemed to have interest in and respect for the God of Israel at times. And he referred to Elisha as my father. Don't kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you've captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they'd finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. And here's the most important verse. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. In other words they had victory victory over their enemies and not one person was even wounded let alone killed can you imagine that strange scene these soldiers have been through the ringer they've been blind they've been on horses going blind to a city they didn't know then as soon as they got their vision back which was a relief, they were in utter terror because now they're the ones that are surrounded. And then they find out that their enemy is not going to attack them inside the city of Samaria. Instead, they're going to be fed. What a strange end to what was going to be a really bloody battle. So there seems to be here a three-part recipe for peaceful conflict resolution. The first part has to do with the Lord surrounding the enemy. And we remember that statement, those who are with us are more than those who are within, that Elisha made to his servant. The second part is suspend. The evil that that particular army was expecting to do was absolutely supernaturally suspended or stopped. Right when Elisha prayed, strike this army with blindness. And then third, serve. Elisha said to the king of Israel, set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So let's look at each one of those in turn. The first one is surround. It was true that eventually the Israelite army was able to surround the Arameans because they'd been blinded and led into the city of Samaria. But initially, even though it wasn't obvious to Elisha's servant at the beginning, the whole army of God had already surrounded the Aramaeans. That reminds me of Psalm 34:7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. There's a beautiful passage in Deuteronomy 32, part of the Jewish law, verses 9 and 10. And the Amplified Bible, as well as some of the other translations, especially brings out this concept of the angel of the Lord surrounding his people. It starts out, For the Lord's portion and chosen share is his people. Jacob, Israel, is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, in the howling wasteland of a wilderness, He kept circling them. He took care of him. He protected him as the apple of his eye. In the King James, it says, He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. Did the Lord find you in a waste howling wilderness? He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. So, that phrase in the King James, he led him about, is translated in other versions and by the Amplified as he kept circling him. It's this idea that the Lord is around us at all times, protecting us. There's a prophecy about the city of Jerusalem in Zechariah 2, verse 5, and it says, for I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Did you catch that? A wall of fire around Jerusalem. That sounds like surround to me. Another really beautiful place where this is illustrated, but in modern day, is in the book by Corey Tinboom called Tramp for the Lord. If you don't know who Corrie Ten Boom was, she was a a Dutch woman who, during World War II, along with her sister and her widowed father, they lived together as watchmakers and watch repairers in their home, and they got involved in the business of hiding Jews in their home, like the, the Jewish underground, so that these Jews wouldn't be carted off by the Germans to concentration camps. And she ended up in a concentration camp herself, as well as her father and her sister, both of whom were killed. This happened to Corey when she was middle-aged. She was eventually released by a clerical error, which seemed miraculous, before World War II was completely over, And then she had a wonderful ministry of traveling around the world and talking to people about her experiences and didn't die until 1983. But she related a story in her book, Tramp for the Lord, about this concept of being surrounded by the Lord. And it's so precious that I think it's worth sharing with you now, when she was, sent to the awful concentration camp Ravensbruck along with her sister, they had with them a little Bible that she kept on a string around her neck. So here we are at the beginning of chapter 1. It's just a few paragraphs in Ravensbruck. Like a whispered curse the word passed through the line. This was the notorious women's death camp itself, the very symbol to Dutch hearts of all that was evil. As we stumbled down the hill, I felt the little Bible bumping on my back. As long as we had that, I thought, we could face even hell itself. But how could we conceal it through the inspection I knew lay ahead? It was the middle of the night when Betsy and I reached the processing barracks. And there, under the harsh ceiling lights, we saw a dismaying sight. As each woman reached the head of the line, she had to strip off every scrap of clothes, throw them all onto a pile guarded by soldiers, and walk naked past the scrutiny of a dozen guards into the shower room. Coming out of the shower room, she wore only a thin regulation prison dress and a pair of shoes. Our Bible! How could we take it past so many watchful eyes? "'Oh, Betsy,' I began, and then stopped at the sight of her pain-whitened face. "'As a guard stood by, I begged him in German to show us the toilets. "'He jerked his head in the direction of the shower room. "'Use the drain holes,' he snapped. "'Timidly, Betsy and I stepped out of line and walked forward to the huge room "'with its row-on-row of overhead spigots. "'It was empty, waiting for the next batch of fifty naked and shivering women.' A few minutes later, we would return here, stripped of everything we possessed, and then we saw them, stacked in a corner, a pile of old wooden benches crawling with cockroaches, but to us, the furniture of heaven itself. In an instant, I had slipped the little bag over my head, and along with my woolen underwear, had stuffed it behind the benches. And so it was that when we were herded into that room ten minutes later, we were not poor, but rich, rich in the care of him who was God, even of Ravensbrook. Of course, when I put on the flimsy prison dress, the Bible bulged beneath it. But that was his business, not mine. At the exit, guards were feeling every prisoner, front, back, and sides. I prayed, Oh, Lord, send your angels to surround us. But then I remembered that angels are spirits, and you can see through them. What I needed was an angel to shield me, so the guards could not see me. Lord, I prayed again, make your angels untransparent. How unorthodox you can pray when you are in great need, but God did not mind. He did it. The woman ahead of me was searched. Behind me, Betsy was searched. They did not touch or even look at me. It was as though I was blocked out of their sight. Outside the building was a second ordeal, another line of guards examining each prisoner again. I slowed down as I reached them, but the captain shoved me roughly by the shoulder. Move along, you're holding up the line. So Betsy and I came to our barracks at Ravensbrück. Before long, we were holding clandestine Bible study groups for an ever-growing group of believers, and Barracks 28 became known throughout the camp as the crazy place where they hope. What is the point? Remember, when you have to go to battle, when there's danger, when the enemy is all around, that the angel of the Lord encamps round about those that fear him. Matthew 26, 52 through 4. Jesus is being arrested at Gethsemane and Peter is upset and he's pulling out a sword and he's going to try to slice off the right ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Don't you think I can't call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? What is the point? That the angels were right there at Jesus' disposal too. Even though in that particular situation he didn't call on them, they were surrounding that scene. You know, God opened the eyes of Elisha's servants so he would understand that God is the one in control. God blinded the eyes of the Syrians so that they would understand that God is the one in control. And God opened the eyes of the Syrians so that they would understand that he is the one in control. The second part of this passage about nonviolent conflict resolution, after surround is suspend, God actually brought to a screeching halt what that Aramean army had planned to do by blinding them. That's not Completely unprecedented, because you might remember that in Genesis 19, there was a mob of men who were threatening to attack the angels that had come to Lot's house in Sodom. They kept calling for the men to be brought out so they could be attacked. Lot was begging them not to do that wicked thing and even offering them his daughters. But they wouldn't listen. Finally, the mob of men said, get out of our way. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so they couldn't find the door. What's the point? At that time, when there was conflict, the Lord suspended it. And once again, it was with blindness. There's another passage in 1 Kings chapter 13. The king at that time of the northern kingdom of Israel was wicked Jeroboam, and he had led the people into idolatry. And so the Lord sent a prophet to proclaim that eventually the idolatrist's priests would actually have their bones burned on the altar that Jeroboam had consecrated. And when Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, seize him. But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he couldn't pull it back. In other words, there was another case where someone was opposing God and His evil was suspended right then and there. In fact, he asked the prophet to pray for him so that his hand would be restored and he could pull it down again. And the prophet did so. God healed the king. But I'll tell you one thing, the king didn't try that anymore. Hop to the New Testament and we look in Acts chapter 9 when Saul of Tarsus, who would become the apostle Paul, was on the road to the Syrian capital of Damascus, going to look for Christians so he could arrest them and throw them in prison? You probably remember that he was suddenly blinded by a light from heaven that flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? The response was, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Anyway, the point was, Saul was opposing the Lord and his evil actions were at that time suspended. He could not go on because he was blinded in Acts 13. There was a sorcerer whose name was Elamus, who was opposing the apostle Paul. And it says that Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamus and said, You're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And that man's evil actions were suspended. Now the Lord does not always simply halt the evil at hand. But this is a case that is supported by a lot of other cases in Scripture where the Lord did that very thing. And you may recall that in the story that we're actually focusing on today in 2 Kings 6 with Elisha, that it came about because Elisha prayed. Elisha said to the Lord, blind these Arameans. And the Lord did so. I wonder if there is a time when you are being unjustly opposed by people who are absolutely doing wrong, that you could pray Lord, halt this. Lord, stop this in its tracks. So we began with surround, and then we looked at suspend, and the last of these three steps in peaceful conflict resolution is the surprising serve. We think of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or the passage in Romans about Keeping coals of fire on a person's head by returning good for evil as a New Testament concept. But did you know that it can be found in the Old Testament in more than one place? If you go back to the Jewish law, Exodus, chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, it says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. Did you catch that? It wasn't your friend's ox or donkey. It says if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 2. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. That passage was echoed in the New Testament book of Romans written by Paul, starting in chapter 12. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. Verse 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and here he is quoting Proverbs 25 that I just read, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I was talking earlier about when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane before his crucifixion and Peter tried to cut off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. Well, he accomplished that. And in Luke 22, it says Jesus told Peter no more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. He's just hours before going to the cross these are his sworn enemies. And right there and then, for the high priest's servant, he picks up that severed ear and he puts it back on and restores it exactly as it should be. First Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. What a remarkable recipe for peace 2 Kings 6 has for us, and it works still today. First of all, remember, God surrounds the enemy. You don't have to be afraid. Second, remember that God is capable of suspending the enemy's evil. Why don't you ask him to? And third, as you have the opportunity, why don't you serve your enemy and see what God might do? If this podcast has been a help to you, pass it along.